The most famous thing the Universalist minister John Murray ever said is something he didn't say. You may possess only a small light, but uncover it, let it shine. Use it in order to bring more light and understanding to the hearts and minds of all people. Give them not hell, but hope and courage. Do not push them deeper into their theological despair, but preach the kindness and everlasting love of God. These lovely words were actually an imagining by one of his biographers, Alfred S. Cole, about the kind of thing that Murray said. Because it was true. He did seek to give people not hell, but hope and courage. Well, that's religious myth for you. A nugget of truth is wrapped up in a story that has drifted from what actually happened. Speaking of drifting, here is the founding myth of universalism in this country. John Murray was an English preacher who was saddened by many losses, ostracized for his universalist preaching, and eager to leave behind his old life and his old home. So he set out for the English colonies in North America and arrived on the shore of New Jersey 250 years ago last fall in September of 1770. To be precise, the ship got stuck on a sandbar. <clears throat> it wasn't going to go anywhere until they got a good strong wind to bear them back out to sea, so he and some other passengers took a small boat to shore. They could feel solid earth beneath their feet for a while and pick up some supplies. A man named Thomas Potter saw the strangers and generously invited them to dinner. And over dinner, he spoke about how he had just built a chapel on his land in the beautiful Pine Barrens of New Jersey. Unfortunately, he didn't actually have anybody lined up to preach there. Murray was not interested. He had left England to get away from all that. And in fact, he had pledged that he would never step into the pulpit again. But having learned that the man he was speaking to was a minister, Potter asked if he would preach just once that coming Sunday. Potter had just shown him such kind hospitality that it seemed stingy to refuse, but Murray doubted that he would still be around on Sunday. And he said so. If the wind was favorable, the ship would be sailing and Murray would be on it. But he said that if he were by chance still there on Sunday, he would give a sermon in Potter's Chapel. Sunday came, September 30th, 1770. The wind had not changed. The ship was still stuck on the sandbar, and Murray kept his word and preached a sermon, a universalist sermon, a sermon that said that all souls would be saved. No loving God would damn us to hell, and Murray preached of a loving God. People on these shores were hungry for that message. And no wonder, a hellfire was a regular topic in most churches. Imagine going to church on a Sunday, which about three quarters of the people did, and hearing that if you didn't confess your sins, which were many, and accept the teachings of the church, 
you would go to hell and be punished eternally. This threat hung over the many infants and children who died. Child mortality was high then. It hung over those who were pregnant as childbirth drew near, since death in childbirth was high. That, in fact, is how John Murray had lost his son and his wife. This threat hung over anyone who had a high fever or a cut that became infected, no antibiotics in 1770. The average life expectancy was well under 40. Life was short, and people had to fear not only death, but what came after, which could be much, much worse. Murray spoke to people living this painful existence, and he brought to them the balm of universalism. God did not condemn us to eternal suffering, he promised, but would reconcile us all to himself. And so, to goodness and happiness. God was not a petulant, vindictive tyrant, but a loving parent who wanted us, his children, to be happy and whole and at peace with ourselves and with each other. Murray was not the very first person to preach this hopeful word here, but he founded the first capital U Universalist Church on the continent in Gloucester, Massachusetts, a few years after that first sermon in the Pine Barrens. The message of universalism spread, and at its peak, universalism was the ninth most populous religion in the United States. Then it dwindled. In seminary, I learned that it had been a victim of its own success. Other Christian churches had embraced universal salvation so thoroughly that the universalists, as a sect, had put themselves out of a job. Out of a job. Good news. That was back in the 19th century. Let's see what the situation is 250 years after Murray brought his good news to these shores. I have some stats from 2015, close enough. So let's see if we can guess how many people believe in hell in our own day. Now, Tim set up a poll for me, and I think I can get it started. Now, no fair looking it up. What percentage of US Americans believe in hell? A place where people who have led bad lives and die without being sorry are eternally punished. Will you make your guess? About 15%, about 30%, about 60%, about 90%. What do you think? I'll give you another 15 seconds or so to answer. Okay, last chance to make your guess. All right. The correct answer is C. At the last research poll I'm aware of, 2015, 58% of US Americans believed in hell. Some think of it as a fiery pit 
others as a state of separation from God. If one believes that God is the source of all good feeling, that state of separation must be something like a prison where you're fed and free of torture, but in which every day has a grim, gray sameness. No beauty, no joy, no love. With a strong majority of the people of our country believing that this is the fate that awaits unrepentant sinners, the only thing that seems to be keeping them from walking around in either a state of terror or zombie-like numbness to the blank horror that awaits is that very few of us believe that we personally will be sent to hell. About 2% of US Americans believe that. Is there a powerful kind of Lake Wobegon effect going on in which the vast majority of us think we are morally above average? Even so, right now in 2021, the threat of hell is still used very effectively to terrify believers, to whip up obedience, and to enlist their aid in bringing others into line. And just looking around, I think it's working. For example, you don't have to go far on the internet to find somebody advising LGBT people that they are welcome in the church, but that they had better confess their sins before it's too late. We've had members of this church whose children were clandestinely baptized by family members who feared for their souls. And some of us have fled traditions or even families that shook the threat of hell at us like a stick. And then there's the response that the Reverend Carlton Pearson, whose words we heard in the reading got when he embraced universalism. Reverend Pearson was born and raised in the Pentecostal church and entered its ministry. He was the minister of a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma that he had helped grow to 6,000 members when he began to preach what he called the gospel of inclusion, the reconciliation of all souls with their creator. In 2004, his colleagues declared him guilty of heresy. All Souls Unitarian Church in Tulsa welcomed him and the members of his church. And they became an affiliate ministry of that congregation. You can learn much more about his journey in the documentary Come Sunday. He, had never, he has never let go of the Pentecostal fervor, his passionate love for God, though he no longer thinks of God as an anthropomorphic, a person-like being, but more a power. That fervor is welded now to a universalist conviction that that power embraces us and will not stop its transformative work until it has brought out the best in us, all of us. What a good fit there is between him and a church called All Souls. A quick internet search on universal salvation or universalism will reveal that many Christian theologians and preachers regard it as an, a pernicious doctrine. It is, quote, the opiate of the theologians, one says, 
warning good, hell-believing Christians against the temptation to believe that God is too loving to make us so prone to flaws and errors and then condemn us to hellfire for them. So, it seems that the teaching that I received in seminary was out of date. Universalism is a very relevant theology today. Okay, so, (coughs) excuse me. This is all very interesting theological history and sociology, but what does it have to do with us? Most of us aren't trying to reconcile Pentecostalism and a loving God, though some are. Some of us believe in God, some don't, but surely few people come here haunted by the emotionally infantile God, in Pearson's words. Right? Well, I have two thoughts about what this all means for us. The first is about those God-haunted, fear-hunted people. And the second is about how our universalism can help us to, in Pearson's words, discover what it means to be human and divinely human at that. Point one. We need to address the fears that bring people to our doors. We need to assure them that they can believe in God without believing in the whole package of vengefulness and punishment. And this is why we keep using God language. Because for many people, hope and courage will appear in the form of a God who loves them and will nurture them into being more loving themselves. Like Pearson, they are reckoning with a family or a community or an inner voice that tells them that God is real and they need to know that that does not mean that a place of eternal punishment awaits them or anyone. If this is you, to you we preach the kindness and everlasting love of God. Point two. Even in a congregation and a movement where so many are atheists, humanists, religious naturalists, or some combination of these, I am not at all convinced that we have really left behind the ways of thought that created that vindictive and frightening God. As Reverend Pearson says, God is the mirror of the culture that lends him a face and a name. We humans dreamed up a God who was very much like ourselves and not our best selves. Ourselves at moments of fear. When out of fear, we reach out to punish and control. When we leave that petulant, punishing, childish God behind, what takes its place? Looking around this country, 250 years after Murray began preaching here, we see punishment as the reflective response to most infractions, from forgetting one's homework to robbing a convenience store at gunpoint. 
a staggering percentage of our people in prison, more than any other country on earth. We imprison our people at more than four times the average global rate. Now that's a Lake Wobegon effect to make us Wobegon. Homelessness, that is poverty, treated as a crime and an offense against the community. Drug addiction, treated as a crime in need of punishment, rather than a health crisis in need of supportive treatment. Peaceful protest, treated as a threat and met with escalation. How close are we really to a hope for universal reconciliation when we treat proposals such as the abolition of prisons and radical reform of law enforcement as fringe ideas. When restorative justice practices are barely on the radar, I, even for minor offenses. And if we are sympathetic to some criminals, our wrath seems to pour out upon others. We may counsel patients for petty thieves, but cry, lock them up about corrupt politicians, or we tolerate the theft of millions of dollars if the thief wears a jacket and tie, but it's three strikes and you're locked up for life, even if the three thefts add up to less than $1,000. How can we hope for universal reconciliation when even in our own ideas about creating a better community, we swing wildly between leniency and second chances on the one hand and throw away the key on the other. It seems as if we have taken God out of the judge's chair, but we haven't gotten rid of that stern chair itself. We judge, and we judge in anger and despair and defeat. We have given up on each other. We've given up on ourselves. What society would we create if we truly believed that everyone can be redeemed, no matter what crimes they've committed or harms they've caused or mistakes they've made? And if your mind goes to the toughest cases, let's just set those aside for a moment. Let's accept Let's just accept that once in a great while, there is someone so incorrigible that we can't imagine anything turning them around, okay? What about the vast rest of us? What society would we create if we had this faith in universal reconciliation, but we thought that we must be the ones to help others along that path? Because Aren't we? Who else is there? Either there is no benevolent God, or there is one, and ours are that God's hands and feet and arms and voices. And we know, as a loving, patient parent God would know, as a wise teacher God would know, that people mess up and people need help and support to become their better selves. We all do. 
When you envision such a land, created and nurtured by the likes of us, the holders of hope, the universalists, what do you see? What do you see in that better world? If you can put it into a few words, post it in the chat for us all to see. And please, no arguing with each other. That could lead to some very fascinating discussions later. But just put in the chat what you envision. If we act with that hope and faith in one another, kingdom of God, people housed instead of sleeping in tents on the street, no more hungry children, healthy ecosystems, far fewer guns. We stop fighting housing for the homeless and low-income people in our communities, hands reaching out to steady someone about to fall. We wouldn't have jails or prisons. We would have peace. What lovely visions. Oh, go ahead, keep them, com keep them coming. As Reverend Pearson also writes, belief compelled through fear is not belief, it is blind and forced obedience. We could say we don't need people to believe in the principles of our country, our communities. We just want them to abide by them. Fair enough, but surely, we want more than blind and forced obedience. Because as any parent or teacher knows who has tried to compel children to obey, sooner or later, you are presented with a choice. They will exert their own will. And you must either reach an agreement between you or else respond so forcefully that you break their spirits the way a harsh animal trainer uses violence and threats to force the animal to submit. Those are the choices. We are neither vicious animals nor trainers of vicious animals. We can be vicious, all right, oh yeah. But we are also beings capable of great kindness. And wisdom and creativity, trying to discover what it means to be human, divinely human. That is what life and love call us to do. It takes courage to respond, and it, it takes hope. And we, as the inheritors of universalism, have a tool a guide, a strong hand of help to offer to our hurting land. So may we do, and may we be blessed and bless the world.